Want exclusive access to bonus episodes, ad-free content, and extra materials? Then join us on patreon.com slash markvinette. Welcome to the History of North America. I'm Mark Vinette. The glorious era that was Tudor England helped shape the early exploration and colonization of the North American continent. Join me as we continue a deep dive into Tudor England and its great transatlantic explorers. The Tudors are only a few years away from colonizing America, but first, they must determine which sovereign shall lay claim to these looming transatlantic discoveries. A highly emotional religion of ritual and imagery gave way to an austere one of words as Protestantism for the first time definitively replaced Catholicism. And it was not just a cosmetic reform. The old Easter processionals, saints' days and pilgrimages of the unreformed religion allowed lay people to participate in religious life. But Protestants saw them as blasphemous ceremonies that took the mind away from true devotion, and they were abolished. The new religion was one where the people should receive the word of God intellectually, not take an active, passionate part in the colourful rituals of Catholic worship. And, with the icons and processions, also went charitable institutions like hospitals, colleges and schools, town guilds and chantries, which had been part of the old religion. These institutions were paid for by people who believed that good works on earth would speed their souls to paradise when they died. But Protestants didn't believe in purgatory. Therefore, there was no need for these charitable institutions designed to help the soul through the intermediary stage of the afterlife. They also believed that the soul would be saved by faith alone, not good works, and so a way of life was brought to an abrupt end. The effect was devastating. The fabric of religious life was torn to pieces, and many were left fearing that they would be condemned to hellfire. The popular reaction was riots and uprisings, especially in the Southwest, protesting against the Act of Uniformity and the introduction of the Book of Common Prayer. In 1549, in their camp outside Exeter, the rebels drew up their list of demands for concessions from Edward's government. It survives in the government's printed counter-propaganda, and it is remarkable both for the bluntness of its language, we will, the rebels state repeatedly, and for the picture it presents of their religious beliefs. For what the rebels wanted was the restoration of a whole series of religious ceremonies. We will, the seventh article reads, have holy bread and holy water made every Sunday, psalms and ashes at the times accustomed, images to be set up again in every church, and all other ancient old ceremonies used heretofore by our holy mother church. Religion, in other words, was a matter of belief made real by ritual, and it was the abolition of these time-honoured and well-loved rituals which had so outraged the common man and common woman and driven them to rebel. They believed that, if the artefacts and practices of their religious life, the candles and rosaries, holy water and Easter processions, relics and icons, pilgrimages and prayers, were taken away, their souls would be damned. But Cranmer disregarded the sincerity of their rebellion and responded in the language of self-confident nationalism. It was not, he said, 
an issue of traditional forms of worship. The rebels' demands amounted to a treacherous call for the country to submit to the laws of the Pope and to make our most undoubted and natural king his vile subject and slave. The protesters were a fifth column. They had demanded the mass to be said in Latin, and be you such enemies to your own country that you will not suffer us to Lord God to thank him to use his sacraments in our own tongue. Protestantism was England's national religion. Moreover, Edward was God's vice-regent. To oppose his reforms was heresy and treason combined. In fact, the rebellion was easily defeated, but Edward soon found a more dangerous opponent in his own half-sister, Mary. It was to divorce her mother, Catherine of Aragon, and marry Anne Boleyn that Henry had broken with Rome, and so for Mary the supremacy had always been a personal as well as a religious affront. Now, faced with the radical reforms of her brother and his council, she discovered her true vocation to be the beacon of the old, true religion in England. In defiance of the law, therefore, she openly continued to hear Mass in the traditional Latin liturgy. The clash between Mary and Edward, who was as stridently Protestant as Mary was Catholic, began at Christmas 1550. It was a family reunion, with Mary, Edward and Elizabeth all gathered together under one roof for the festivities. But, as so often, Christmas turned into a time for family quarrels as the 13-year-old Edward upbraided his 34-year-old sister for daring to break his laws and hear mass. Humiliated, Mary burst into tears. She replied, I have offended no law unless it be a late law of your own making for the altering of matters in religion, which, in my conscience, is not worthy to have the name of law. The law that she recognised was that which had been laid down by Henry VIII. He had retained at least the outward essentials of the old religion. She would not accept that Edward, a child, could have any kind of authority, especially not spiritual authority, to change the religion of the country. She believed instead that the country should be preserved as it was in 1547. But Edward was capable of holding his own opinion and defended he would. He truly believed what he'd been told at his coronation. He was God's anointed and he would purge Catholic blasphemy from his realm. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-218-6010. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-218-6010. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-218-6010. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. When she was next summoned to court a few weeks later, Mary came with a large retinue, all of them conspicuously carrying officially banned rosaries as a badge of their Catholicism. Mary had arrived in force for what she knew would be a confrontation 
with the full weight of Edward's government. But when she was summoned before the king and council, and taxed with disobedience, she played her trump card. Her cousin on her mother's side was the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, the most powerful ruler in Europe. Mary now invoked his mighty protection, and the imperial ambassador hurried to court to threaten war if Mary were not given freedom of religion. Faced with the combination of foreign war and Catholic insurrection at home, the council backed off. It was Edward's turn to weep tears of frustration. And there was worse to come. In the winter of 1552, Edward started to cough blood. And by the following spring, it was obvious to everyone that the young king was dying. In the same year, the Reformation reached its high point. What little there remained of Henry's moderation was abandoned as Protestant reform reached its climax. The real presence of Christ in the sacrifice of Eucharist during Mass was rejected by the second Book of Common Prayer. Altars, which symbolise the sacrifice of Christ during the Eucharistic rites, were stripped from churches throughout the country and replaced with rough communion tables. It was a complete rejection of the old faith and the end of the compromise between Catholicism and Protestantism that Henry had advocated. Reform was hurtling in one direction, but Mary's intransigent Catholicism now became more than an obstacle to the progress of reform. It threatened the very survival of Protestantism itself. For Mary, her father had declared, was Edward's heir. She would succeed as queen and supreme head of the church, and, like her father and brother before her, she would be able to remake the religion of England according to her own lights. It was clear to everyone, even Edward, that this was only a matter of time. The thought of Mary as his Catholic successor was intolerable to the hotly Protestant Edward, so, with a confidence that was breathtaking in a dying 15-year-old boy, he decided unilaterally to change the rules. He set down his commands in an extraordinary document. It is headed in his bold schoolboy hand, My Device for the Succession. It was against statute law and drawn up without parliamentary consent, but the sickly king believed that his God-given authority would extend beyond the grave. First, he excluded Elizabeth, as well as Mary, from the succession on the grounds that both his half-sisters were bastards. Second, he transferred the throne to the family of his cousins, the Greys. And third, he decided that women were unfit to rule in their own right, though they could transmit their claims to their sons or, in legal jargon, their heirs male. The problem was that all his Grey cousins were women, and, though they had been married off at breakneck speed, none of them had yet had children. In the course of time, no doubt, the problem would have solved itself. But, in view of Edward's rapidly declining health, there wasn't time. Instead, Edward swallowed his misogyny and called for his device. With two or three deft strokes of the pen, he altered the rules one last time. Originally, he had left the crown to the sons of the eldest grey sister, the Lady Jane. The Lady Jane's heirs male. One crossing out and two words inserted over a carrot change this to the Lady Jane and her heirs male. If Edward could make his choice stick, the impeccably Protestant and deeply learned Lady Jane Grey would be his successor as Queen. On the 6th of July, 1553, Edward died. On the 10th, 
the sixteen-year-old Lady Jane Grey was brought to the Tower to be proclaimed Queen. The Tower was the traditional location for such a declaration. The difference in this case was that Lady Jane would never leave its precincts again. Jane was the great-granddaughter of Henry VII through his younger daughter Mary, and was a first cousin once removed of Edward VI. You are once removed if you are separated by one generation, and twice removed if you are separated by two generations, and so on. Here's a quick tip: your parents' first, second, and third cousins are also your first, second, and third cousins, but once removed. Check out the YouTube version of this episode, which has accompanying images. I'm Mark Vinet, and I hope you're enjoying the ride. The Historical Jesus Podcast is the sweeping saga of the life and times of Galilean Jesus of Nazareth, as well as the faith, religion, and church founded to honor and disseminate his acts and teachings. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this fascinating journey through time, exploring the many great works of Christian theology, literature, architecture, music, and art. Inspired by the words and deeds of Jesus Christ.